You may be aware that the founder of Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, and 10 other Oath Keepers members have been indicted for sedition in reference to the events of January 6th. What may surprise you to know is that if we go back to about 2010, I was a dues-paying member of Oath Keepers. Back then, the organization was much different, and I was attracted to the so-called Ten Commandments of Oath Keepers. These are things that military and law enforcement personnel should never do, even if ordered to do it. And as former military and law enforcement, that resonated with me. The Dr. Reality Vodcast with Dave Champion. Let's start today's discussion by looking at those so-called Ten Commandments of Oath Keepers that resonated with me back then, and frankly, still do today. I left Oath Keepers for reasons unrelated to these Ten Commandments. So, number one, we will not obey any order to disarm the American people. Number two, we will not obey any order to conduct warrantless searches of the American people, their homes, vehicles, papers, or effects, such as warrantless house-to-house searches for weapons or persons. Number three, we will not obey any order to detain American citizens as, quote, unlawful enemy combatants, close quote, or to subject them to trial by military tribunal. Number four, we will not obey orders to impose martial law or a, quote, state of emergency, close quote, on a state, or to enter with force into to a state without the express consent and invitation of that state's legislature and governor. Number five, we will not obey orders to invade or subjugate any state that asserts its sovereignty and declares that the national government is in violation of the compact by which that state entered the union. Number six, we will not obey any order to blockade American cities, thus turning them into giant concentration camps. Number seven, we will not obey any order to force American citizens into any form of detention camps under any pretext. Number eight, we will not obey orders to assist or support the use of any foreign troops on U.S. soil against the American people to, quote, keep the peace or to, quote, maintain control during any emergency or under any other pretext. We will consider such use of foreign troops against our people to be an invasion and an act of war. Number nine, we will not obey any order to confiscate the property of American people, including food and other essential supplies, under the emerg- under any emergency pretext whatsoever. And ten, we will not obey any order which infringes on the right of the people to free speech, to peaceably assemble, and to petition government for redress of grievance. In short... Oath Keepers started out as an organization merely articulating 10 key principles that no one in military or law enforcement should ever do, even if ordered to do so. I supported that then, and I support that now. I mentioned a moment ago that I disassociated myself with Oath Keepers for reasons other than those so-called Ten Commandments, and that was because uh, a couple of years in, I noticed that the dialogue in Oath Keepers had become very politicized, and I I had no interest in that. I was there for things like these Ten Commandments, that it's a moral and ethical imperative that people in military and law enforcement do not do those things. When the dialogue got very politicized, yeah, I wasn't interested in that, so I left, stopped paying dues, stopped affiliating myself with Oath Keepers in probably 2013. Since Stuart Rhodes and the other 10 have been indicted for sedition, 
What specifically does that mean in U.S. law? You'll find that in Title 18, Section 3482, entitled Seditious Conspiracy. We'll talk about conspiracy in a moment. Quote, If two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against them or to oppose by force the authority thereof or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States, contrary to the authority thereof, they shall each be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. Close section. You'll note that the statute only requires two or more people to conspire to commit one of the acts described in the statute. It does not require them to actually do the act. If that were the case, then the government, even if they saw a a conspiracy to commit sedition, they would have to back off, keep their hands off that, and allow that sort of thing to occur, and then make the arrest, which is, legally speaking, pretty absurd. So now that we know what sedition is under U.S. law, let's talk about what the allegations are of the United States Department of Justice against Stuart Rhodes and the other Oath Keepers. Here's the allegation. Rhodes and the other 10 defendants organized an armed plot to storm the Capitol for the purpose of stopping the certification of Biden as the winner of the 2020 election. I should probably stop right there and say nothing in this presentation has to do with politics or the election per se. If you think Biden won the election, great. If you think Trump won the election, great. This is not about that. If you think Biden is a great president or the worst president, or you think Trump was a fantastic president or one of the worst presidents, nothing, your personal sentiments in politics is not about this. This is about the law of sedition and the allegations being made against Rhode and the other 10 by the Department of Justice. The government further alleges that the goal was pursued by the defendants by having, quote, quick reaction forces, close quote, stationed at a comfort inn in Arlington, Virginia, and other locations just outside the Capitol. And that on January 5th, the defendants had one team from Florida dropped off, quote, at least three luggage carts worth of gun boxes, rifle cases, and suitcases filled with ammunition, close quote, for the quick reaction force. A second team from North Carolina had rifles ready to go in a vehicle parked in the hotel a few miles from the Capitol. The government also alleges that it has electronic communication between these various parties, Rhodes and the other 10, that show what their intent was. So, to reiterate, the elements of the crime, as alleged by the government, they had intended by use of force to obstruct Pence from doing what he was at the Capitol to do that day, which was to read the votes of the individual states and certify the election, which would then declare that Biden had won. The second element is that they had teams of people from various states, in this case, what I shared with you today, from Florida and North Carolina, that came to D.C. in order to further the agenda of stopping, according to the government, by intended violence, the certification of the election. Also, that the defendants did bring a sizable amount of firearms and ammunition to the scene for that purpose. And finally, the government contends that it has the electronic communications showing that all of this was planned and done to achieve the purpose stated, which was to, by violence, obstruct Congress from declaring Biden the winner of the 2020 election. 
Now, understanding what the government has alleged against the 11 defendants, an allegation is different than proving it. Getting a grand jury to indict is different than proving it. Making statements to the media is different than proving it. So how might this play out? If the government is correct in what it asserts, if it does have electronic communications that show the intent that we've discussed, and it can prove that these teams came from other states to carry forth that purpose, and if it can show a jury that these teams, these participants, these defendants did in fact bring considerable firepower to the D.C. area to do that, then these guys are toast and they are going to be convicted. But we should keep in mind, sometimes what the government presents thinking, this, this, is, this is it, we've got it, look at all this evidence, the weight of evidence, yeah, this is, this is for sure a conviction. Just as we saw in the Rittenhouse matter, doesn't mean the jury is going to agree. And of course, then we have the defense putting on its case. Let us say that the electronic communications are not as specific as the Department of Justice is indicating to the public now. Let's say they could potentially be interpreted different ways, and the defense was able to plausibly argue to the jury that those men were there and those weapons were there to defend Trump supporters from people, from or, people within organizations such as Antifa. Even if the electronic communications don't specifically use that word, if the electronics communications in the possession of DOJ are not conclusive and the defense could plausibly argue another determination, the jury may choose not to convict. In fact, if I was sitting on a jury and the government showed electronic communications and claimed they meant A, but then the defense pointed out it could mean B or C or D, if I was a juror, I wouldn't convict because... If the electronic communications avail themselves of multiple interpretations, then there's no particular reason that I, as a juror, would buy into the government's interpretation, what the government wants me to believe that those electronic communications mean. But again, uh, if the electronic communications are conclusive as to purpose and intent, these guys are toast. I started my training in the law uh, by jumping into a pool of fire, the very first area of law that I chose to pursue was income tax law, which is without a doubt the single most complex area of law in the entire compendium of U.S. law. And the reason I say it was kind of trial by fire uh, is income tax law involves civil law. It involves criminal law. It involves regulatory law much of it written in arcane language, because remember, the first Income Tax Act um, under the authority of the 16th Amendment was passed in 1913. In addition to that, uh, the tax code and the regulations were very intentionally written to make it virtually impossible for a layperson to determine the truth of the income tax. I remember there was an FBI agent that said about 20 years ago, he said he spent his entire career in the FBI looking at federal law and enforcing federal law, he said, and then when he retired and he looked at the tax code, his point of view was essentially, I'm pretty much an expert at U.S. law after however long he spent, 20 or 30 years in the FBI. I'm pretty much an expert at federal law. And he said when he looked at the tax code, he couldn't make heads or tails of it. And that is intentional. And the reason that it had to be written that way 
is because Congress has never imposed the income tax on the average American. You, you got a couple of kids, you get up, you have a cup of coffee, you go off to work, whether you own your own business or you work for somebody else, and you earn a few bucks, you earn a living. If that's you, Congress has never imposed the income tax on you. But they still want your money. So the only way to get your money is to create this entire convoluted mess so you can't make sense of it. And then because you can't, you say, I'm just going to go along. I don't want any hassles. And you're going to give up a fair percentage of your income for your entire life because you can't make sense of that rat's nest of law that is the tax code. I've got good news for you. If you purchase a copy of Income Tax Shattering the Mess, in 400 pages, I break this all down from 1895 forward. All of the statutes, all of the regs, treasury decisions, treasury orders, internal documents of the IRS that the IRS never thought the public would get a hold of, decisions of the Supreme Court, determinations of the Congressional Research Service. And it's all consistent, and it all says the exact same thing, which is the income tax was never imposed by Congress on the ordinary American. You! And that is made crystal clear, proven 100% in income tax shattering the mist. Now, whether you choose to do something with the information you'll find in income tax shattering the mist, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people have chosen to leave the scam behind once they knew the truth. However, I want to be clear, you don't have to do that. Okay? But my opinion is, whether you choose to act on the information or you choose not to act on the information, my opinion, for what it's worth. Uh, is that every single American should know the truth about the income tax, should be able to speak intelligently about it because the federal government is committing the largest financial crime in the history of the world on the American people. And how do we stop that? Well, well, the first thing we do is we start a dialogue about it. We start pushing back. And how do we do that? I can't do it alone. But if you're knowledgeable, and you will be the expert in the room after you've read Income Tax Shouting this, let me be clear. Anywhere you go, talk to an accountant, a tax attorney, anywhere you go, you will be the expert in the room on the income tax. And you can start talking to other people. And if you are sickened by the lies of the government and the government stealing from the American people, then you're my kind of person. I hope you'll go to drreality.news and pick up a copy of Income Tax Shattering the Mist. Thanks. 